and welcome to the Society of Construction Law Australia's podcast, the podcast where we will look at technical and legal issues facing the Australian construction industry. My name is Melissa Yeo and I'm one of the directors of the Society. In this episode, we hear from Dr. Ashley Brinson, Executive Director at the Warren Centre. Ashley presented at our national conference in Canberra in November this year. Ashley tells us about the opportunities available in the construction industry and the role the Warren Centre is playing in leading research around these opportunities. I hope you find Ashley's presentation as informative as I did. Be sure to subscribe to the Society of Construction Law podcast to be alerted when new episodes are available. We look forward to sharing more updates from our national conference in the next few episodes. I'm Melissa Yeo and thanks for joining us. Good morning, all. Distinguished colleagues, Justice Vickery, uh, I'll give you a um, a salad this morning for breakfast. Uh, Two large pieces of fruit, one small piece of fruit, and some gelatin sort of holding it all together. Uh, I'll I'll call this innovation opportunities, and the, the piece that holds it all together is the question about how can we improve, and to some degree, how can we react to the situations around us. Um, I, the, the, the two large pieces of fruit are a $30 billion opportunity uh, for cost savings in Australia and an opportunity to raise our professional performance in the engineering sector. And then finally, um, global trade and engineering services and what that means. As Justice Vickery mentioned, the Warren Center is named for William Henry Warren, the first uh, lecturer in engineering on the continent. Uh, so we, we stand on the shoulders of giants. but but. Uh, I, I cannot say that um, any, anything that I've done is as big as that Sydney Harbor Bridge. It's quite a piece of work. Uh, Bradfield was, was one of Warren's students, and the diagram that you see there is the 1912 layout of the, of the city of Sydney rail system, and it's substantially uh, the same today as what it was originally imagined, and of course the, the Harbor Bridge there in 1930. Uh, The Warren Center is a science, technology, innovation center at the University of Sydney. We're a think tank. Uh, What a think tank does is it it gets inside the minds of those that listen to it and it it twists your mind and turns your mind in a different direction. I'll I'll attempt to do that this morning. Uh, The Warren Center is a place of collaboration between universities, especially the University of Sydney, government and industry, and and we have uh, articles of incorporation that, that send me off on a mission to advance innovation and promote advanced engineering on the continent of Australia. So I'll do that this morning if I'm successful. Uh, There are two enduring themes at the Warren Center among the the people that have been there over the years. One is what I call the the innovator entrepreneur, uh, men and women who have invented a new technology and built a company based on that technology. And the second major person that is there is, is the placemaker, the builder and the placemaker. And, and I'll be really uh, turning my attention to those builders and placemakers. But uh, over the years, over 33 years, the Warren Center has, has sought to facilitate self-led industry reform and improvement. Uh, this is typical of the work that we do, a panel discussion about 
translating what's happening in innovation. So this was the beginning of this year. Uh, we had uh, Dean Economou, a uh, data technologist from Data61, talking about transportation data. Uh, the, the third person on the panel there is Eduardo Nebo. Eduardo's uh, Australian Center for Field Robotics has autonomous cars, and, and Eduardo was talking about integrating new technology into transport systems uh, to make uh, driving safer and to, to prevent loss of human life. Uh, the fourth person on that panel is, is Dave uh, from Dave Rorschheim, the managing director of Uber ANZ. So uh, we, in February, the, the topic of autonomous cars, the topic of uh, driving apps was very new and fairly unknown in Australia. Uh, but by putting this on at the ASX in an evening, uh, we were able to, to give the technical community an idea of what was coming in the, in the following 12 months. Uh, well, sometimes we do advice to industry. I'll talk today a little about work that we've done for the International Copper Association looking at, at demographic trends, transportation trends, and some very large capital projects up in Asia, and, and perhaps speak about that tomorrow a bit. Uh, the efforts that the Warren Center undertakes are frequently very long-term efforts impacting the way that people think and the way that we approach our work as engineers and lawyers. Uh, you may be aware of some of the projects there in the past. There's an interesting little um, uh, driverless uh, car pod there that was imagined in, in 2000, well before we see these actually being deployed now in London and in Perth. Uh, 30 years of, of advocacy, frequently the effects of that advocacy is not felt for, for decades on, and, and that's some of the projects of my predecessors. Uh, today I'll talk about um, planning, engineering, and delivery, and, and a portfolio of projects that we have at the Warren Center. Um, at, the, at the front end of this is, a, is an activity of, of urban reform and deciding what types of infrastructure what might we need in our new cities. In the middle part, I'll speak about this as uh, an opportunity for saving as much as $30 billion a year on infrastructure waste and what that waste means. And then finally, uh, an element over here, uh, professional performance, also known as PPIR, which is a standard of care for engineering. Um, internationally, uh, we have case studies of, of projects that have blown out with enormous cost overruns, enormous uh, difficulty of getting the asset up and running so that the quality was not realized. It's, it's better sometimes to talk about these in foreign jurisdictions because there's no one in the room who worked on them. Uh, but the, the one on the top left here is the Berlin airport, which was seven years late and $5 billion overblown. Uh, and I, I understood at the time that we put this photograph together that although you couldn't take off from that airport, you could pay 10 euros and take a bus tour around a dysfunctional airport, and that was their, their cash flow strain perhaps in the first year. Uh, and this airport in, in Madrid uh, was a $1.5 billion asset that was actually shut down shortly after it was built and, and not used. Uh, this, this pattern is, is uh, not unusual around the world, and uh, there are multiple international examples of, of dysfunctional uh, major infrastructure projects. Uh, in 2013, Infrastructure Australia commissioned a report, and, and the output of that report was that uh, in the coming years, Australia would be spending up to $200 billion a year on infrastructure projects as, as a nation, and that's a mixture of private and public spending. But it's typical that uh, a large fraction of that is, is waste. And, and waste doesn't mean uh, sort of scrap steel left over at the end of the project. It means 
uh, money that was spent that didn't deliver the objectives of the, of the person who paid for the, for the project. And so that $30 billion a year figure is, um, is cited there by uh, Infrastructure Australia. It's, it's a large chunk of GDP, and advanced nations are implementing procedures to improve their capability to deliver large infrastructure, and certainly Australia and the rest of the world needs large infrastructure in the coming years. Uh, so we've, we've gone through a, a stack of papers and projects and academic uh, papers on the subject and, and broken those down into uh, root cause areas and, and made an invitation to industry and to the, the legal profession to join together to address and reform the way that we undertake major projects. Uh, the four categories are culture, process, technology, and governance. And, and just looking at some of the, the pieces inside those elements, um, learning from failure, uh, how to incorporate innovation on a project and bring new technology in while at the same time mitigating the risk that, that uh, an adverse effect may come, uh, how we allocate risks among comp complex tiers of contractor, subcontractor, sub-subcontractor, and so that the, the risk is borne by the party who's most able to manage it. Uh, and in the government, in the governance uh, segment there, uh, independence and authority for decisions coming from someone who, who doesn't have a, perhaps a political motiva motivation to promote the project, but is looking out for the, for the interests of the payer. In 2015-2016, we led a number of panel discussions in Sydney and had some participation from um, friends in Melbourne who came up. Uh, you can see the companies there that participated. Uh, at, the, at the present time, uh, this is an ongoing, unaddressed problem in Australia. Uh, October 23rd, Grattan Institute issued a report titled Cost Overruns in the Transport Infrastructure. Uh, you, can, you can pull this up on your, um, your iPad when you get back to the office. They analyzed 836 projects. Uh, a few of these were real dogs that, that blew out by five times, especially a couple of road projects. Uh, but the conclusion there was that um, the Australian government's state level and commonwealth level had spent $28 billion over 15 years, and, and there were some uh, not-so-nice statements there about the political motivations of those promoting the projects. Uh, the, the report concludes that there's a stronger governance role needed for Infrastructure Australia to sort of pre-approve and vet the projects. Uh, it's, it's probably something that is not unknown for those who've been in the, um, in the space for some time. Um, as you know, in, in December 2015, um, international agreement to address uh, the climate was reached. And, and for those of us in the construction industry that are looking forward on the conveyor belt for some very large infrastructure projects that are coming, uh, perhaps there's a new vocabulary that's not uh, spoken very broadly in the construction arena. And I'll introduce you to a few words there. Um, the COP21 uh, Paris conference was, was the conference in, in December. Uh, nations put forward their individual nationally determined contributions, sort of volunteer contributions to reduce CO2 emissions. And in Australia and in other countries, there was a project called the Deep Decarbonization Pathways Project to list out what those technologies would be. Uh, there were three scenarios considered for Australia, uh, carbon capture and sequestration, which would require some new technology and very large bolt-on bolt -on, 
CO2 extraction and sequestration technologies, large capital projects would be required and, and some additional technology. Uh, second scenario was, was more renewable and storage and that storage technology isn't, isn't around now. Uh, we had some discussions at the table yesterday about warranties for new technology uh, and the storage technologies that don't exist now. We can't magically make solar panels uh, create electricity in the middle of the night or wind farms uh, create wind when the wind stops blowing wind electricity. So there's, there's uh, major technologies that aren't on the table now and, and those will require complex types of contracts to guarantee the storage in the future if that's, if that's on, the, on the horizon. This third deep decarbonization pathway project scenario was, was nuclear power in Australia. And so the, the range of technologies that are required there, the size of the projects is very large and, and these will be technically complex projects, uh, perhaps with technology coming from offshore to Australia. So, so get them in your field of view for the future. There's a lot of work coming. Um, on October 4th, the, the 55 countries, 55% of emissions trigger happened. Uh, and and the 30-day the process started that uh, the, the Paris conference would become live. So today is November the 4th, is that right? Uh, so we're live today. Uh, later in the week, uh, there'll be a, a, a climate conference in Marrakesh with, with some more work happening in this space. Uh, yesterday at 11 o'clock, Energy, the French owner of Hazelwood Power Plant in Victoria, announced they'd be shutting down the power plant, laying off 800 employees, 200 contractors, a, a large chunk of electricity that'll have to be replaced from somewhere. So we don't know what the cost of the decarbonization policy will be in the future. It will be in the tens of billions, perhaps in the order of magnitude of $100 billion of work. And the, the climate enthusiasts would say that we need to hit that mark by 2050. So there's a huge amount of work, a huge amount of money to be spent in a fairly short period of time. Uh, and, and that is all dependent on the political will of people to pay more for electricity. So this is a complex space. Um, October 31st, the, the Australian uh, newspaper critiqued one of the projects ongoing at the moment and said that there was a blowout of five billion dollars on the Wheatstone LNG project and, and said that uh, this project uh, casts Australia as the most expensive place in the world to do energy projects. That is not a good position to be in when we look at the amount of work that will be required in the coming time to, to address the needs uh, that are committed to in the, in the Paris conference. So the Warren Center has um, ongoing engagement in this area. On November 24th, we'll have a, a series of um, speakers on uh, large projects from Europe. Uh, Andrew McNaughton built the High Speed 2 project, uh, very high speed trains between cities in the UK. And Hans-Peter Vetch there built the longest tunnel in, in uh, that mankind has ever built, a 57 kilometer tunnel through the uh, Swiss Alps. Uh, th that panel will be in, in Sydney on November 24th. If you're interested to attend, just let me know at the break and I'll, and I'll give you some information about it. And we're looking for anchor partners uh, to run a round table on IP30 and, and realization of this $30 billion uh, opportunity. Uh, the second piece of fruit in the fruit salad this morning is, is a bit more lawyerly and a little less uh, public policy. Uh, the Warren Center for some years has promoted an idea that is uh, Professional Performance Innovation and Risk, also known as PPAR. We've shortened that just to Professional Performance so it's nice, clean, and sweet. Um, Engineers Australia has well-developed um, guidelines for engineering ethics, engineering competency, ethics being the, the moral framework under which we do our work, no bribes, 
truthful engagement. Competency is, is a stage one, stage two thing for engineers. Uh, it, you, you graduate from a university with an accredited degree. You are stage one competent. After the engineer has worked for four years, the engineer can apply with their record of experience and become stage two competent. And that is a gateway that is um, past looking at the experiences and, and intelligence that's been put onto the hard drive of the engineer. Uh, what, what hasn't been written down in the past is looking prospectively or retrospectively at how a project was performed and how the engineer performed her work on that project, whether that performance met the standard of care. And uh, the Warren Center has, has worked with uh, industry partners, um, Engineers Australia, Consult Australia, a number of companies, a number of people in this room actually, to identify those elements of management, innovation, risk, uh, public expectation, competence, task, management, stakeholder management, and contracting that, that would define good performance on a project going forward, and, and that is PPIR. A uh, number of companies sat on panels for a number of years to, to hammer that out. In the end, it, it fits nicely on uh, two pieces, two sides of one piece of paper with some definitions, so it's, it's actually fairly simple. Um, the, the document uh, proclaims in the preamble that it sets out to define the standard of care. And as, as the lawyers in the room know, that has a, a specific legal meaning. Um, in English common law, there's a principle of BOLUM that uh, is not in the engineering and construction context, but in the medical context, and especially in a context of public policy around health in the UK and the NHS, the, the high court clearly rejected that principle in, in Rogers and Whitaker in 1992. Uh, in, in 2001, there was a bit of an insurance crisis with the collapse of HIH, and engineers were finding it difficult to have insurance for, for some of the work that they did. Uh, so the Warren Center uh, began this process. Uh, at the same time, there were uh, reforms with Civil Liabilities Act that uh, codified elements of BOLUM into each state's law. And, and each state has a, a line that says something along these lines, uh, that the professional acting uh, will not incur liability and negligence if they acted in a manner that, was, that, that represented competent professional practice. And if that standard is widely accepted by peer professional opinion, then, then it pr provides a shield for the engineer against negligence. Uh, a couple of other cases there, but but the intent of the engineers and the lawyers and those in the, in the industry was to create that shield and to write it down on a piece of paper, make it simple, and then to use that as a defense against negligence. Uh, so in Queensland, that, uh, that standard of care is written into the uh, Queensland Code for Registered Professional Engineers. Queensland is the only state now with, a, with an engineering registration requirement. Uh, but the PPIR is a bit written into the, the code there. Um, you will know a couple of recent news incidents, and, and I'll use my vocabulary carefully to describe those. Uh, but, but the first incident that I'll describe is uh, the Bankstown Lidcombe Hospital medical gases uh, disaster that happened uh, that, w that we're aware of now. Um, in, in one regard, PPAR is a, is a defense against negligence. In another aspect of its personality, it's aspirational from the older engineers to teach the younger engineers how to do their job better and how to raise their performance. And if you have uh, followed the event, 
the, the Department of Health had, has issued a, an interim report uh, and it cites uh, this mistake that happened when uh, oxygen piping and nitrogen, nitrous oxide piping were crossed in an operating theater and, and two babies, one was uh, suffered uh, brain injuries and one died in, in the, in the op operating room in the hospital. Um, uh, the, the Australian standard requires that that piping should have been tested by a designated person who was installing it and that that test should have been written on a piece of paper and witnessed from someone in the hospital. But for various reasons, uh, when the baby needed oxygen and went into the, the, the crib, into the, uh, the cot, uh, the baby was delivered nitrous oxide by, by accident. And if, if, if an engineer and if an engineering company uh, might have turned their mind towards those elements of managing the engineering task, of communicating clearly with stakeholders and engaging those stakeholders in the task and considering very carefully what the statutory requirements of the public were, then perhaps problems like this might be avoided in the future. And so that's the aspirational element. <clears throat> that I'm appealing to you today uh, to take this out to your engineering organizations and, and promote the idea that we can train engineers to better performance. Uh, you'll also know, or you also will have seen perhaps the Dreamworld incident that happened uh, perhaps about a week ago. Four deaths in 1986, the ride was um, installed. There was no regulation on amusement parks in Australia. In 1988, there was a, an amusement park design and installation standard. And then in 2009, there's a, there's a maintenance and repair standard. Uh, so we don't know what happened, uh, but perhaps there will be people looking at that incident saying, what could we have done better to protect uh, safety of the public? So that's PPIR. Um, we've got a website. We're doing some training with, with universities now and students. Uh, you can see the universities there. Uh, there'll be an update from Revision 2 to Revision 3. Uh, Brett Walker's uh, an SC in, in Sydney. Uh, he's advised us to, to insert some softening words, realistic, appropriate, reasonable. Uh, an example there is, is the word realistic inserted in this line. Uh, we've asked Mr. Brock Walker to give uh, a briefing and that's tentatively planned for November 30th in Sydney and, and that'll be confirmed. If you're interested, uh, we'd love to have you come and hear Mr. Walker's uh, presentation on, on PPIR. Um, the, the last little piece of fruit in the, in the fruit salad this morning is looking at globalization, how it affects our work in Sydney or in, in Australia. Um, you know that the Japan Economic Partnership Agreement was signed in the last couple of years, uh, CAFTA and CHAFTA. Uh, there's a Trans-Pacific Partnership that, that's floating out there. Uh, whether that gets lift off or not uh, is to be seen. <clears throat> but just looking at CHAFTA, there's an article in CHAFTA that uh, says that China and Australia will uh, accord services and service providers with no less favorable treatment than it accords any other party, any other non-party of the treaty. So, so you can raise your hand if you're a British, Irish, American engineer, Canadian engineer working in Australia. CHAFTA essentially uh, puts Chinese engineers on that same footing. And, and I haven't looked at CAFTA or the Japan agreement, but I imagine that, that those are the same. Uh, that has an effect on engineering services. Um, uh, there is uh, Article 8.15 seeks to uh, create uh, flat, parallel, uh, professional accommodation, uh, including engineering services. Uh, we're not into Chinese traditional medicine, but engineering services are, are definitely qualified there. Uh, Construction-related 
engineering services, and, and you can see the list there. Uh, I believe that this may be uh, opening the door uh, for certain states and certain governments to reconsider whether engineering registration is a requirement. If, if foreign engineers come to Australia and they sort of have a free pass to perform engineering, but an Australian engineering go to China, uh, there's, a, there's a, a barrier, an entry barrier that is a registration system in China. Uh, perhaps some of the states are, are trying to make a, um, a clear uh, professional guideline about what it means to be an engineer. And certainly the Victorian government has a stakeholder consultation paper out from last month. Um, and concluding there, uh, looking back at the salad that we had for breakfast, uh, the, the $30 billion opportunity in infrastructure productivity savings, uh, professional performance in the PPIR standard, uh, and, and perhaps how our globalization is calling for uh, some adjustments in our recognition of who is a professional engineer in Australia. But, but the theme of all of this is that uh, as, a, as a body of professionals in engineering and construction, we can do better. And, and I appeal for your support uh, to move forward with uh, improving uh, the outcome of all of our work. Uh, there's a session tomorrow. Be, be welcome to have you tomorrow. I'll, I'll talk about uh, infrastructure imperialism and some thoughts about Australia's place in the Asia-Pacific region. Um, I'm Ashley. I'm at the Warren Center. Uh, please feel free to contact me during the break, and, and we'll have a chat. Thank you.